Glad Tiding is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to Glad Tidings, the Athletics Everton podcast. As ever, it's with me, Greg O'Keefe and Paddy Boyland. And uh, it's been a lively week. We've done a piece, which is, as we record now, it's Thursday lunchtime. We've done a piece today talking about the fourth anniversary of Farhad Mashiri, Everton's now owner. Um, back in February 2016, when he came in, he was would have been the majority shareholder. We just had a look at, I suppose, really the man behind the, um, the, the Everton billionaire, trying to find out the details, things that make him tick his likes, his quirks, and just um, flesh out that character, really, that we've, we've all seen in fits and spurts, but has really maintained a, quite a, a high degree of privacy for the owner of a Premier League football club. So um, that was uh, the main brief for pa- Paddy and I this week. We've done, a, like I say, a long read on the site today. Hope you've either enjoyed it or maybe are going to spare a few minutes to have a look through it. Um, Paddy, it was quite a challenging piece as they go, wasn't it? Well, for numerous reasons, but just trying to find out more about the man. Yeah, and I, I think any piece on Mashiri's four years at Everton has to obviously be effectively an analysis as well yeah. of where Everton are in relation to when he came in, the kinds of decisions he's made, whether he's got them right or wrong, when he has got decisions wrong, as of course any football owner will. Why has he got those decisions wrong? What, what was wrong with the decision-making progress? So I think it, it was kind of all-encompassing, really, a little bit on kind of Mashiri the man, who he is. Hard from that angle to, to, to get to loads of people that speak to him and keep him regular contact. But I th- we did manage to do that to an extent. And then also we'll look at kind of figures that have worked with him day in, day out at Everton and p- people that know him well. I guess the obvious thing to say is that he came in four years ago at a time when Everton were kind of in the mid-table. The ambition, the stated aim was to push Everton on and to, there was a small window of opportunity to, to push Everton into the top four, top six. Hasn't done that yet. Um, but I think the tone of the piece is rather upbeat. It's, it's kind of like mistakes have been made, but maybe a few lessons have been learned. Now the right people from a footballing point of view, seem to be in place. Uh, when you look at Ancelotti's appointment, Marcel Brands being at the club, maybe some of those mistakes that have been made in the past will not be made now moving forward. And perhaps if we look at the next four years and make that an eight-year tenure, by, the, by that time, you would hope Everton would have pushed on, we'll be back in Europe, and hopefully we'll be in a new stadium as well. So... I think it's an interesting piece. It's one that I'd, I'd urge everyone to have a look at. Um, but certainly, he's an interesting character. And there were lots of interesting things that we were told about him and his personality. I mean, what were the, what were the main takeaways that you learned from speaking to people about not just Mashiri the man, but also Mashiri the Everton owner and what he's done over these four years? So, like, let's kind of split them up. Start with the man. Um, the man. <laughs> it was probably... is. You know, he's a, he's a quirky guy. 
he's, he's an interesting, complex character, I think. Um, he's, he's got a really short attention span. A couple of people we spoke to who'd spent a lot of time in his company sort of riffed on that, his ability to zone in and out of conversations, literally walk in and out of meetings, sometimes almost quite erratically. Um, he's obsessive about football. He's got like an encyclopedic football knowledge. Um, we, we used the line, didn't we? That someone was telling us about, like, he'll tell you who Besiktas's third choice left back is. Um, which sort of, sort of builds into another observation. And someone said, and it's not just about Farhad Mashiri, it's about a lot of these billionaire football owners, is that there's an extent to which he's playing football manager uh, in, re- in, real, in real life, isn't he? He's, um, it's his train set, and it's kind of a, a toy. Um, but crucially and I think this is what really eases my apart from the obvious signs of his his benefactory nature the fact that he's he's serious about his ambition i.e. Ancelotti £350 million spent it's his genuine uh, aims he really isn't in it to make a book it's not like uh, uh, and there's that comparison drawn to um, the West Ham owners isn't there Um, where really you've got guys who yeah, they're stated as West Ham fans, but they're making money off the club. It's loans with interest. Mishiri's the exact opposite. And, you know, they've hired David Moyes again. We've got Ancelotti. Uh, Mishiri gives loans, uh, gives money which uh, then turns to equity. He doesn't expect anything back. Well, effectively, then they're interest-free loans, aren't they? Interest-free loans. And, of course, as he said, someone was telling us, they said to him once, do you expect to make anything from this? And he said, no, I'm not going to, am I? Because I think he actually just wants to be someone who brings success back to the sleeping giant. His state aims are like noble aims. Um, so, yes, there've been hicks. Yes, there's eccentricities. Yes, I, certainly in some of our transfer dealings, I think he's been maybe a little too involved at times. Um, but I think he's learning from that process. And you know, maybe I think you were speaking to one who spoke about how he's deferring more to the experts in that regard a bit more. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he came into the club at a time just after the Moyes era where they were trying to follow on from that, make that next step under Roberto Martinez. And obviously the early years of Roberto Martinez, the early year and a bit was fundamentally positive. It looked like Everton were ready to gate crash on the top four. But he comes in at a time when Everton are kind of in that mid-table, like I mentioned earlier. And um, <laughs> I think he's, he's kind of, he was learning on the job almost. I think he was almost kind of like somebody who was interested in football, but had never had serious experience of running a football club before. Yeah. Didn't have a lot of his own men there. And Everton had done things very differently for a long time before that. I mean, people we'd spoken to effectively said, if you were an agent before um, Mashiri came in, you were effectively dealing with Bill Kenwright. Um, maybe by default then Steve Walsh at times under, under the under the Koeman, re- Koeman regime but it was always Bill Kenwright and agents would liaise with him as to how players were getting on who they had available all that kind of stuff Bill Kenwright is obviously still very much a part of Everton Football Club he's the chairman he's a close associate of, and friend of, of Farhad's as we, as we know but things are done in a completely different way now so the the football inside of things being completely overhauled, whereas Moyes did all of his own transfers in uh, association with Chief Scout Robbie Cook. 
power is almost ceded by the head coach, the manager. Um, so Ancelotti will liaise now with Marcel Brands. Mishiri gets involved, and I think at times he has been a little bit too involved in some of those deals, as you say. But equally, he's got some of those deals over the line as well. And you look at, for example, the hiring of Ancelotti. And we were, it was described to us at the time almost as a job interview that went two ways. It wasn't just Ancelotti making the case to Everton. Everton had to make the case to Carlo Ancelotti too. It was They had to convince him of the merits and the ambition scale of the project, the vision moving forward. Mashiri is one of the key protagonists in the room to do that. And we know Ancelotti was suitably impressed then to take the role on. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a check it out look, I think. You, you look at some of it and you think, well, maybe as he cir- circumnavigated Marcel Brands here, maybe Marcel Brands needs to do a bit more. But equally, there's a new structure in place that you hope will bear fruit in the long term as well. And I think if he's learned anything, it's probably that he needs to allow people like Marcel, now that he's brought in a, a top quality director of football, to kind of do his job and to unearth the players that are going to carry Everton forward, obviously in conjunction with Carlo Ancelotti. But that has to be a process where Brand says to, to Ancelotti, what are you looking for from this central midfielder over the summer? What are you looking for from that right winger? Is it going to be a right winger that comes inside on his left foot? Is it going to be one that goes on the outside? Is it going to be a playmaker like an Emi Buendia? And I'm, I'm, I'm just plucking his name out of thin air. There's, there's no tangible link there, but I'm just there's an example. What kind of player is that going to be? In midfield, do you want Abdoulaye Decore or do you want a, a deep-sitting midfielder that's going to dictate the tempo, a la Mikel Arteta for much of David Moyes' era? That's up to Ancelotti to give the instruction to Brands and then for Brands and his scouting team to carry it out and get the negotiations over the line with Mashiri coming in then with the money. I don't, I don't know if you agree, but that's my main takeaway with regards to what needs to happen now in the transfer market to push Everton on. No, I agree with that. Um, and I think it's easy to sometimes get, and understandable to sometimes get, mega frustrated with the lack of progress, tangible progress on the pitch. But for various reasons, that's we know that you can throw money at something and it still won't happen in a straight line. We've seen that. But you shouldn't disregard the progress off the pitch. And as what someone told us, you know, like four years ago, Everton's sort of administrative commercial heart was sort of languishing was the word that uh, the person we spoke to used in old scruffy looking offices in Goodison now they're on like the best floor of the liver buildings looking out in the Mersey straight down the barrel of what's hopefully going to be one of the finest view, what, you know, views of a football stadium in, in the world sight, isn't it? it's an amazing sight the liver buildings and, and maybe that's a maybe for some people that's only a superficial thing but I think it feeds into the idea that Everton are now looking at the very least to try and recruit top commercial professionals people that are going to make a difference we've been to that liver building site haven't we and it's, it, is, it is impressive yeah and we've, we've been through also um, so many stalled ground moves and projects to try and um, kick on commercially at the ultimate level of building a new stadium. And I've, you know, we've all seen them, them fail, ultimately, and, and felt the consequent frustration. Um, the fact that Bradman Miller's got to this stage is down to Fahad Mashiri. Um, and, you know, is... Web of very, very influential and wealthy contacts, and that you, we can't disregard. Alicia Osmanov who's obviously been in, incredibly influential as well, and will continue to to be so. So, yeah, I think his, his ownership so far has been a vastly, hugely positive thing, and can only get better. I think providing 
that as as the signs have have been that he's going to learn his lessons of um, you know of of being a, a positive owner of a football club. Um, so going forward, I think it'll be fantastic. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you've got the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash tidings and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of this show, you'll get two extra free beers. That's ten free beers. Beer52 or Beer Pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power's in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in, just to top it all off. So just go to www.beer52.com forward slash tidings to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, listeners to Glad Tidings get two extra free beers. Going forward on, on the immediate horizon, we've obviously got United on, on Sunday, haven't we? A sort of semi-resurgent United. Good little bit of business for them in January, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, in particular the signing of Bruno Fernandes, who I think is just very, very good player. And I think effectively what's happened there, there's been a playmaking void. One matters pushing on in age. Uh, Paul Pogba has obviously sat out a lot of the season through injury. And I think we'll probably, nice <laughs> could probably leave over the summer, reading between the lines. So they've effectively done that succession plan early and got in one of Europe's highest-rated young attacking midfielders to take that position. You hit the ground running. Sometimes players from the Portuguese league and other non-major European leagues, if you want to call them that, sometimes those players take a while to settle. But I've not seen many issues of teething problems so far for, for Bruno Fernandes. They do look a little bit revitalised as a result. Anthony Martial is now a, a little bit more productive. Maguire is starting to become a leader at centre-back. Wan-Bissaka, while I would still question his merits going forward, a very solid defender, out-and-out defender, who seems almost impossible to get past <laughs> at, at times. And that, that, that's another task for Everton on, uh, on Sunday, obviously. So it's a, Manchester United are a different beast to the one that arrived at Goodison last season when they effectively threw in the towel as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer put it Everton won 4-0 as anybody listening will remember one of the highlights of the of last season from from an Everton perspective certainly in my in my book so it's another difficult game coming so soon after Arsenal during a difficult run of fixtures what I would say is I, I thought there were promising signs against Arsenal despite the results promising signs doesn't get you into Europe so if Everton want to qualify for any European competition, even the Europa League, this is a an absolute essential three points. It needs to be a three points, particularly against a direct rival. <sighs> difficult game, really, really difficult game. But what I wanted to ask you about was, obviously, this is our first pod since the Arsenal game. We've not really given any major reflections on Andre Gomez beyond the piece I wrote immediately afterwards, looking at the way he recovered and how important he is to the squad. Yeah. 
first of all, what, what did you make of his return? I mean, it was thoroughly impressive in the way he played for 30 minutes. But also, the question that this throws up in my mind is, who now plays alongside him? Assuming he starts against Manchester United, as we think he will, who starts alongside him is it almost changes the balance and the dynamic, and it might mean that players that have been real fixtures in this side over the last couple of years are almost now not redundant, but their places are up for grabs. So, I mean, how do you see that battle for midfield places going forward now that Andre Gomez is back? An interesting one, especially given that we understand that it's it's going to consistently be in, in, in the format of four four two. So. There's an even higher premium on, on getting into that central midfield or maybe on the left. And the reason I say that is because obviously your first thought is, as we as I wrote earlier in the week, where does Gilfie Sigurdsson fit into this? The big argument is that he doesn't. Um, for example, I can't envisage a central midfield on Sunday or maybe against the most opposition that is Gomez and Sigurdsson. Because I don't think Sigurdsson provides you enough um, of cover, really, in 4-4-2. Um, if anything, you know, down the line, Gabamon and Gomez kind of make sense. And that's when I talk about maybe a, if Sigurdsson's going to have a role in this team, and I know a lot of people don't feel he will have going forward, it, it'll either be off the sides or potentially nothing at all. Um, which is frustrating in a way because Sigurdsson... It's got so much more to offer than a Schneidlin or, and with respect, because it's the very, very different ends of their career, a Davis um, or a Delph in some ways. But he hasn't shown enough of it this season. So he's at most a threat for me at the moment. What about you? Well, I mean, we were having a bit of a discussion, weren't we, over the Sigurdsson piece earlier in the week and just brainstorming a few ideas. I'm very quickly just looking at the kind of the key figures and key facts and figures. I think is it one assist or goal in 16 games for Gilfie? Uh, when you consider that last year he was up at 13 goals and uh, half a dozen assists. Yeah. So you compare the respective outputs and it's not like we're only halfway through the season now. We're pushing on. We're kind of almost two thirds of the way, maybe even two thirds of the way through now. Um, so his output has dropped dramatically. Obviously the team is hasn't always played as well as it did last season and that's hampered him he's also now playing a different role and managers keep accommodating him whatever else I mean there's quite a neg- negative reaction to to Sigurdsson's performances from fans on social media and, and even in the comments on your piece people were rightly pointing out that he's not had a big influence this season and I've seen his kind of his productivity diminish but Carlo Ancelotti keeps selecting him Marco Silva kept selecting him. Doesn't mean it's right, but they've obviously got their reasons. I just think maybe they select him because, first of all, he's, the, he's, he's seen as a set-piece specialist. He takes a lot of Everton's corners and free kicks and everything else. Second, people do expect him because of how good his right foot is to chip in with more goals. But then also, he's expected to play those forward passes. What happens if Andrea Gomez comes in and plays those forward passes even better? Where does he fit in? Because Sigurdsson moved over to the left against Arsenal. And I actually don't think, while it's a position he could play in, I don't think he's the best option there for Everton in a 4-4-2. Because I think Bernard plays that role better. And I think Awobi can play that role better. So then, 
does he play with Andre Gomez in midfield? Like you, I've got the same question mark over his defensive output. I think you almost kind of need somebody to be a bit more disciplined, a bit more mobile. I don't like that. I didn't like the setup at the Emirates because I don't want... I know Theo Walcott was injured, so Ancelotti's hands were tied to an extent. But it left Everton lacking width and lacking dynamism wide in both areas. And when you think of Everton at the best, it's those fast transitions to get the likes of Richarlison on the move, one-on-one with the defenders, with Awobi and, and Sigurdsson. It? it does, it very much does. And there were still some good sweeping moves from Everton. I'll, I'll point everyone to the, the move at 1-0, where Awobi fires just past the post. If that goes in, I think it's a different game, by the way. But I don't think Everton can really feasibly get away with playing that system all the time and I'd quite like to see Bernard come back into the equation against Manchester United so I think Sigurdsson's role is up in the air as was effectively the unwritten conclusion in your piece but one of the things that's interested me most is I don't think he's ever done it I don't think he's ever shirked I don't think he's ever from a work rate purely from a work rate point of view dropped his levels I think he always puts a shift in for the team and always looks to do his bit but he's almost not not amongst the whole fan base but he's almost an unpopular figure now and some of the stuff you get back about him when you ask people a question about Sigurdsson is quite dismissive yeah. and it's almost it's almost like he's a he's become like a new Kevin Morales or whatever I think he works harder than Morales so what what, what is the it can't purely just be a footballing thing like why, why is it do you think that fans almost kind of some fans have this impression of them in their head that beyond merely the fact that he's not scoring goals or assisting goals so it's a good way of, what you, way of putting it across there. I hadn't thought that comparison, but he it does feel like he's becoming a Kevin Morales type figure. And I have to say, I think I feel that's unfair. I mean, any scapegoatism is unfair at times, but Morales didn't help himself. And, and all that stuff about refusing to train with him and Schneidlin um, and, and going back inside, you know, let, let's put on record... You know, they both dispute that happening, Schneiderlin and Morales. But whether they dispute the full facts of it, yeah, that's clear. But something obviously happened, and it, either way it was unpalatable. And you can understand fans being frustrated. I don't think you can ever question Gilfie Sigurdsson's commitment in that regard. And you and I were talking earlier off-air. Off he appeared in every single game for Everton last season. So his professionalism and his fitness and his ability to, you know be consistently there and available to put on that blue shirt is unquestioned so therefore you're left to talk about his transfer fee which he didn't decide and his wages which are high but they're not the highest at the club so I feel he, he suffers a little bit because of expectations probably on the back of the player he was at Swansea and I would agree and I would be the first to suggest we haven't seen enough of that player and I have suggested a few minutes ago I don't really think or rather, I think it's very hard to see a cast-iron future for him now, unless Ancelotti can really galvanise his uh, role at Everton and find a new role for him. Uh, but, but I can't see that in a 4-4-2. And we keep hearing that this is essentially how he wants to play with the ball going forward. This isn't a, fa- a, a transitional phase. So I think it's a bit unfair from the stick he gets. It's a bit binary but maybe it's just the nature of some fans. I think I think that is the nature of the way certain people assess football now. I think everybody's 10 out of 10 or really bad. And very often there's that middle ground that's a little bit lacking. 
and maybe it's not the case here. Maybe Sigurdsson has just had a poor season and is starting to decline. That's the argument put forward by some, obviously. I think it's kind of twofold. I think the first thing is he came in with an awful lot of expectation around him. When you look at the, you look at the figure that Everton spent on him, £45 million, he was effectively the marquee signing. Oh, yeah. Of the um, well, he still is he, the marquee signing of the Machiri era. So, what better way to analyse how that's going than by having a look at the whether the forty-five million pound marquee signing was value for money? And I think what the, the issue has been that Everton fans now look at him and think he's getting on on big wages. Yeah, he's on big wages. So the resale value isn't there in the way it was. Um, yeah, maybe maybe they played at the time. Maybe they were prepared to pay slightly, slightly over the odds for Richarlison. But they kind of knew that there was a certain amount they were always going to be able to recoup on him because he was a young player. He was on the up. And it, maybe he's become a symbol, unfair, in, inadvertently, unbeknownst to him, and not because of him purely, because of that figure and that fee. Maybe he's effectively become the symbol for why Mashiri's Everton haven't yet pushed on. He's kind of been good, but not good enough to be top six. Slightly on the decline now. Very little in the way of resale value. So it's how do you cash in on him and then get somebody a little bit younger? It seems like they've started to learn lessons, going back to the Mashiri point, bringing in people like Richarlison, Luca Dean, these guys, even Alex Awobi, whatever you, whatever you make of Alex Awobi as a player, he's still a youngster, he's still a Nigeria international. And you would assume that if he left Everton, there'd be a host of clubs around Europe that would be keen to take him anyway. That's the way Everton have to work moving forward. They have to sign young players on the up, look to grow them. They either sit, sit in Everton's first team and become a key part, key component moving forward. Or occasionally they might look to cash in and bring some money into the coffers as as they have done. So I just I almost think that like he's inadvertently become a symbol for the missed opportunities and the stagnation, the kind of lack of progress on the pitch over the last few years. And with them now declining, that's only likely to get a little bit worse as fans kind of weigh up and put him under the microscope even more. But I I I, I think it's difficult for him now. I think it really really is in four four team. Because I think in, in playing him in central midfield, you're moving him back from his number 10 position. As a number 10, maybe he's not involved enough in the game for 90 minutes. But at the very least, there you get the opportunity to get him to the edge of the box and get him in goal-scoring positions. I don't really see him in goal-scoring goal positions anymore. And there you're kind of sacrificing one of his key attributes. So it's almost like you, you just bite the bullet and say, do we play Andre Gomez instead? We, I mean, Gomez is probably Everton's best central midfielder carries the ball, passes the ball very well as we saw at the Emirates um, for a number of chances so does Gomez make Sigurdsson a little bit redundant in that midfield or do we still say yeah he's a useful squad player to have around, I just wonder can you afford a squad player on his wages with his value depreciating on the, on the books from an amortisation point of view can Everton afford that given the, the financial predicament and this, this is what makes it difficult they, they are still effect, in effect Mashiri and others are paying the price for the mistakes that were made particularly under Ronald Koeman and Steve Walsh Yeah I, I agree um, I would say and this sounds like this is definitely not intended as a, a, pe- a pessimistic comment but what I would say is as well that 
what Sigurdsson did last season, 13 goals, 6 assists, Gomez hasn't done yet. Andre Gomez, is, uh, as often as the case when a player suffers a serious injury and is out, um, his value triples exponentially because you can remember only the best things about him. He's a very, very gifted player. For me, he's got to be part on midfield going forward. But he also needs to contribute more goals. He needs a season where he can look back at his figures and go, yeah, there's... I know he's only been in the club a couple of seasons and one of them was on loan. But next season, he needs to start playing huge runs of games, start scoring, start creating goals. But the eye test, as we often talk about, says he's a sensational footballer. Um, but just an interesting comparison now, you know, he can't sit back and look at any, anything in completion the way Sigurdsson can last season and go, I've showed you what I can do. That point aside, and the last one maybe on Sigurdsson is that I think he also suffers from the malaise of the captaincy at Everton, where there's a disconnect between what Evertonians, particularly at Goodison, expect to see from a captain and what these people who keep given the captain's armband of late are like as characters. And that goes back to Jagielka. Um, Sigurdsson's not a demonstrative player in the sense that he's not a chest-out tub-thumper. He doesn't giddy up the crowd. He's maybe a different type of captain. He's a cerebral guy. He maybe leads by example. He maybe leads with tactical input in team meetings and, and his example around Finch Farm. But he's not one to, to rabble-rouse. Uh, he's not one to throw in tackles um, when you know, you're up against it, it backs up against the wall. So he doesn't fit traditional mould with a captain. So, and it also, his head can drop sometimes. You know, when things aren't going against him, he can get frustrated. Uh, and that's probably a fault of his but equally he doesn't benefit from that captain's, captaincy sometimes I don't think so it's an interesting one um, I do wonder I do wonder if like you know you say is, is time's coming to a close now yeah I think moving away from Sigurdsson as an individual a little bit I think one other really important issue for Everton to address over the summer is the spread of goals throughout the team because at the moment and we're right to herald what Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison are doing at the top end of the pitch but the next best goal scorer in the Premier League for Everton is Bernard with three Yerry Mina's starting to chip in but should have had more but we're not really getting goals from in a 4-4-2 we're not getting goals from the left winger the right winger the central midfielders and you made a really interesting point about Andre Gomez he might come in and replace Gilfie Sigurdsson, but he is never going to score you 10, 15 goals a season. He, he doesn't. I think, I think his, his limit is probably five or six. The midfield options currently at Everton's disposal, you've got Delph, Schneidlin, Sigurdsson, who we've already mentioned, whose goal return has decreased massively, and Tom Davis. None of them are goal scorers. And Everton need to find a way of getting another 10 to 15 goals in this team. So that might mean an upgrade on the right. It might mean Theo Walcott chipping in with more goals. I think they do They do want another right-sided player, and Marcel Brands has alluded to this. So I think that right-sided player needs to score goals. He needs to have a goal-scoring pedigree. But I also think, because they've targeted central midfield as well, that the central midfield they bring in needs to score goals too. Because we need to start sharing those goals around. It's great, like, like I said, it's great that Calvert-Lewin's scoring goals. It's great that Richarlison's scoring goals. They're doing exactly what we expect of them, I would say, over the course of a season. And maybe have even gone beyond that. But if you don't have the guys getting into the eights and tens, then you don't get into Europe 
with regularity and you certainly don't get into the Champions League because Chelsea will have Mason Mount that bags goals um, Tottenham have always had Christian Eriksen to chip in Everton don't have that player at the moment so I think that's that's just one thing to bear in mind I think for the for the summer wherever it comes they need to get more goals into that side Yeah, totally agree well let's uh, hope at least we see some goals on Sunday uh, it's a really tough game as we've outlined I think it's one we need to win um, if we've got serious ambitions of Europe because given how difficult it'll be at Stamford Bridge I'd take a draw there and then um, then the derby's the derby isn't it enough said about that really um, well listen <laughs> thanks very much for listening uh, and uh, we will be covering obviously the press conference tomorrow and the game big game at Goodison on Sunday uh, we'll be back next week and uh, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the playlist in the background <laughs> um, yeah it's been a pleasure thanks bye